0: The Royal Australian Air Force in person 1921 to 2021, Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McCrae, OAM.
1: Air Commodore retired Chris Wade, CSC. Air Commodore Chris Wade, CSC, joined the Royal Australian Air Force in January 1974. And on graduation from pilot training, he was posted to fly helicopters with No. 5 Squadron. Between 1976 and 1988, he completed operational and flying instructional tours throughout Australia, the South West Pacific, and also the Middle East, Flying Huey and Squirrel Helicopters and CT-4 and Mackie Trainers. In 1988, Chris was posted to No. 38 Squadron, where he served as Training Flight Commander and Executive Officer Flying Caribou. He served as the Australian member of the Air Standardisation Coordinating Committee, which was located with the United States Air Force headquarters in Washington, D.C., and that was from 1997 to 2000. Chris was promoted into the position of Deputy Director Aviation Capability Improvement Team in February 2003. In March 2004, he took over the position of Director of Flying Safety, ADF and Director of Air Force Safety. He was awarded the Conspicuous Service Cross in 2006 for his efforts in the introduction of the safety management system into the Air Force. In January 2006, he was appointed to Officer Commanding Air Training Wing. Chris was then appointed as Commander of Combat Support Group in 2008. From March to November 2012, he deployed to the Middle East area of operations as the Deputy Commander of Joint Task Force 633, covering an area of joint operations from Afghanistan through to the Middle East and Indian Ocean to the Seychelles. He was awarded a commendation for distinguished service for his efforts in that position, and he retired from the Permanent Air Force in February 2013. And then he took up the reserve position of Head of Airshows. Well, it's great to have your company, Sir Noddy. How did you get the nickname? Like
0: all things in the air force, it doesn't really point to anything, but it was better than some. So it was about <laughs> <able>. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. Did uh, you get to choose it, or was it chosen for you?
0: Uh, you know, uh, there was a, uh, a saying going around uh, in the in the early seventies of "rack off, naughty." I think it just stuck from that one day, and uh, like I said, there was a lot worse names going around. So I said, well, well you know.
1: Yeah, look, Chris, I understand. Uh, just as a silly question, and you, if you don't know, you don't know. How did this uh, tradition of giving everyone who joins the Air Force some sort of nickname, do you know where it started or why it started?
0: Oh, I think it's a great Australian sort of way of doing business, isn't it? Yeah, well, there you Nobody go. Nobody uses their own name, and uh, I think that goes right back to uh, perhaps pre-World War One. You joined in
1: 1974. Why? Why did you choose the Air Force? Well, it was I was always wanting to fly. I had a uh, I had a cousin who was in the Air Force. He was
0: a bloke by the name of Ken Semler. Uh, He was a Mirage pilot. He influenced my uh, liking of the Air Force, I guess, or my liking of uh, wanting to be in the Air Force a lot in in those early formative teenage years, and uh, it was just a natural thing for me to apply for that and why we went.
1: When you got your wings in 1976, was it, thereabouts? Yeah. uh, Yeah. You were posted to Number 5 Squadron. Now, that's helicopters. Uh, during, During your training... Had you anticipated or wanted helicopters, or did you want something else, and how did that occur?
0: It was a funny sort of uh, progression, I guess. I think when everybody joins the Air Force, they all want to be fighter pilots. Well, if they don't, they shouldn't be joining the Air Force. Uh, You know, I started off that way, but I had a lot of influence from my instructors, and uh, being around that uh, early 70s, there was a lot of instructors out there who'd been to Vietnam, flown helicopters in Vietnam, and I certainly got influenced by those guys during my training. And I guess it was about the point uh, where we were at Pierce and where we just started flying the Mackie that I had a, had a couple of good instructors there and uh, and also went over and had a little fly of the SAR helicopter. Well, A ride, but I sat in the front seat of the SAR helicopter and a bloke by the name of Greg Forbes took me around.
1: What sort of helicopter was that? Sorry.
0: That was a Huey. It was a Bravo model. Oh, okay, right probably had served in Vietnam. Actually, I don't know the tail number. I probably could look it up. But, yeah, it just fascinated me, this whole idea of being able to fly without moving forward. And that's when I just changed my preference and and it was where I wanted to go.
1: You write about or you talk about an interesting experience you had with Ken Webb in high range on a night medical evacuation in 1977, uh, crashing. That must have uh, put a dent in your enthusiasm.
0: Uh, Yes and no. I mean, it was a a fairly... uh, Feel horrendous, sort of uh, thing to go through. I mean, one thing about helicopter crashes, they don't happen quickly. They sort of thrash themselves to death for a while. Really, but uh, you know, it was it was a tricky it was a tricky job we were doing. Um, sort of tricky conditions with low cloud and a bit of drizzle, and we didn't have a lot of night aids in those days. We were just you know basically just trying to land off a couple of Land Rover lights on a steep uh, or a slopey terrain, uh, you can get a lot of illusions or or misorientation quite easily and uh, that's what ended up happening. And a survival crash for everybody on board, even though we were fairly broken up as far as the aircraft goes. Everybody survived, uh, some better than others, but uh, certainly we're all still living to this day.
1: Yeah, well, uh, that's an interesting experience. Uh, uh, Was it just soon after that that you were deployed to the Middle East as a junior Huey captain?
0: Uh, Yes, uh, first overseas deployment at 21 years old was good fun. Off to a little place called Ishmaelia, which is on the Suez Canal. We were there to uh, help the UN monitor the the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel of the day. Excellent flying, excellent conditions uh, for for seeing things that you probably wouldn't see back home in Australia. And uh, certainly uh, a tight-knit bunch of blokes, a small team of about 40 guys in the detachment. Uh, Really enjoyable flying, but really enjoyable uh, being part of that team.
1: How did, the helico- how did the helicopters handle the, uh, the weather and, and the desert?
0: I mean, obviously, the maintainers had to do a lot more. Uh, There's sand ingestion and the engines and the blades would work quicker, so there was a whole lot of extra maintenance requirements. But uh, they flew pretty well, so it wasn't an issue.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Um, because I know, having spoken to some other people in the Air Force that were in planes, uh, they they found it sometimes difficult to handle the weather and the extreme desert conditions.
0: We were there in winter, and I tell you what, we weren't prepared for the cold. It was it was quite cold out, out there at uh, that time of year and uh, strong winds. You do your planning, and, and some days you couldn't fly. I mean, it was simple as that. You just couldn't go flying because there were sandstorms or uh, strong winds. But generally speaking, uh, we, we knew the routes we had to go. We knew where we, where we wanted to be, and we did the job.
1: What was your, n- not you personally, but your group's, role in that event?
0: It was a number of things. It was obviously helicopter support to the rest of the UN forces who were who were outposted in the various spots in the Sinai. So we would provide them with provisions of you know, re-rationing or changing over personnel. But then there were also the observer group who were out there actually monitoring the peace treaty. And these guys were, uh, were there to count the tanks, check People haven't been crossing the border when they shouldn't be, all that sort of thing. So we'd take them and they would go out and talk to the various uh, Israeli or uh, Egyptian outposts and just make sure that everybody's doing the right thing. So it was, uh, it was uh, logistics and, I guess, uh, checking on uh, what's going
1: on. How do you recall the peace treaty going in terms of the relationship between the Israelis and the Egyptians? Uh, did, was it acrimonious? Was it, OK, we've got a peace treaty? How, what was it like? Oh, I don't think it was ever acrimonious. They certainly didn't necessarily
0: see uh, see each other's side of the story, but they, they tended to hold it pretty well. Uh, of course, there was then, uh, you know, further treaties uh, after that. I mean, Anwar Sadat was the... The president of Egypt at the time, and he, he obviously got assassinated shortly after I was there. Uh, it, it was an interesting uh, internal struggle, I think, for Egypt sure. and Israel. Of course, were really hanging on to protecting their what they considered to be their right to have a have a country. So uh, I don't think it's ever going to be resolved properly uh, over no, there.
1: No, the Middle East. Uh, it doesn't seem to change that much. It, all the pe- all the changes are the personalities. The the issue doesn't <laughs> change. You go then to the Middle East uh, as a Huey flying instrument, is that is that was was that part of the anzac con, uh, contingent to the multinational force
0: yeah the australian contingent to the multinational forces or the anzac condition. Uh, so uh, that was sort of a couple of years later uh, after i'd been flying instructing for a while at 1fts uh, then i went back uh, as a helicopter instructor to fire squadron and then up to 35 squadron and uh, uh, and from there got got the uh, 6 months back Back in the Middle East, with a different mob, not the UN, the ACMFO, but it's doing the same job pretty well. Um, the buffer zone had moved uh, across the Sinai to the eastern side of the Sinai by then, and uh, we did a very similar job to what we did in the UN but this time I was a little bit more experienced and had the job as the as the contingent flying instructor as well so got to do a few a few other things other than just uh, drive the aeroplane around
1: sure and wh- what's the re- what was the relationship between the Australian group and the various foreign nationals that you were working with and for
0: oh it was good i mean you know we we all got along we all had a had the same reason to be there. Some of the countries were more aligned to our sense of humour, perhaps, or our our culture. Mm. Um, It was really, you know, an all-in team effort from all the contingents. Uh, We got on well with the, the Swedish guys. We got on well with the... You know the Finns. Sorry, Finns were in the first lot, not that lot.
1: What I mean, about the the group, the, the nations in which you were working? That those people.
0: Yeah, they were great. Uh, you know, made some good friends. Uh, I kept uh, we the closest ones were the aviation groups, and the other aviation group with the with the French. And I still keep in touch with uh, one of the guys that I met there. You know, almost forty years ago, or forty years ago. Yes, indeed, it was. So um, yeah, a terrific time learning other people's way of doing business.
1: I guess if you had an enduring memory from that period that particular set of years what would what would stand out as a, a, an enduring memory for you surviving the nights in the mess mainly but uh
0: it was certainly different back then on operations, and I would consider that to be on operations. Uh, you know, we were doing a real job. We were armed, personal arms, not not aircrafts weapons, but uh, certainly personal arms because you didn't know what was going to happen. We had contingency plans if, if, uh, if things went sour. You know, you had to be on your game, and I, I think the main thing is just, uh, if you're going to remember anything, it is working with the team to achieve an operational outcome, and,
1: mm. and I really enjoyed. it. That seems to be an enduring observation from all of the people, the 65-plus people I've spoken to. The the concept of team within the Royal Australian Air Force is rather special.
0: Yeah, it is, and uh, it's been like that for, for a long, long time. I hope it continues in the future, and uh, I think uh,
1: from what I see, it will. Yeah. You mentioned the when we spoke about the crash uh, in 77, it was in the night and you only had... Uh, Range Rover or whatever you said, lights for the helicopter. What was the? How did the night vision goggle capability came about? What was your role in that?
0: In the final area of the Air Force uh, actually owning the helicopters before they were transferred back into Army, obviously, uh, you know, the night vision goggle or night vision aid at uh, flight was progressing. We as a we as an Air Force wanted to embrace this. Uh, So we developed this capability over a period of years. Um, The first set of goggles were were fairly rudimentary, but then we got some, which were uh, much more capable. So with that capability, we had to develop a whole set of techniques. And I guess one of the pushes was this was the counter terrorist operations that the, the Special Air Services were were developing and. The need for rotary wing support for that, so that's where a lot of that came came from. And we developed those those tactics uh, basically from nothing. Uh, We took a little, borrowed a little bit out of the U.S. Army and developed that for our needs into a training course, and then started training people uh, over a period of time, and uh, eventually modified the aircraft to accept night vision goggles because obviously the
1: how do they work? How do they work? What's the what's the idea behind them uh, it just
0: amplifies light so if you get a little bit of light coming in through the lens of the night vision goggle it hits a it's a uh, a filter you might get one photon in it chucks 50 photons out sort of thing so it actually amplifies light and then those those photons then go onto a screen so you're actually watching a little screen it's not like looking through tele through a binoculars although it is a binocular type arrangement but it is a, just a light amplification process a bit like little tv screens and uh obviously in a in a totally dark night where there's no light coming in there's very little to amplify so yeah i understand um,
1: so but d- does this change the whole parameter of what the the helicopter can then do it becoming a more effective ingredient within nighttime events
0: oh absolutely in fact i don't think anybody in a military now flies unaided at night the the normal is to fly aided because it's like it's not like flying in the daytime but it's not far off you don't need uh, you don't need to have a lot of. Uh, you can fly low level. Um, you can fly approaches without having to illuminate the, the landing spot and all that sort of stuff. So it's a bit like taking uh, daytime and throwing it into night. Yeah. And uh, certainly, uh, I wouldn't wouldn't uh, I wouldn't go flying in a in a military context anymore without without being uh, having night vision aids. Yeah,
1: uh, I know it. Uh, it's quite effective now but during that time you mentioned a moment ago that this night vision goggles came about in a time when the air force was moving the choppers from air force to army uh what was the general feeling among people like you when that process was occurring in other words you were losing the helicopters
0: uh yeah it was a bit of a knock on the head
1: um you know uh, or a kick in the
0: guts if you want to call it that uh we we didn't think it was the best option at the time um uh, i uh, i i can certainly understand army's point of view uh they wanted a bit more control over what they got it from their helicopters um you know it's an aviation capability i'll say this uh, you know i have no question that the people operating within the army aren't as good as anybody else they are terrific but the organizations themselves perhaps are not you know, if an Air Force thinks about aviation, an Army doesn't necessarily think about aviation.
1: Yeah, understand, but, understand.
0: And that's been brought out over the years, uh, and I think uh, in recent times uh, the Army has um, developed a lot more consideration of aviation as a combat force and put a lot more effort into looking after their aviators uh, than they did in the early days.
1: Yeah, I would, I would assume What well, I get the impression that uh, in this 21st century, the relationship with the, all of the three defence forces, Navy, Army and Air Force, is a much more effective one than it was, say, in World War II or in Korea or in Vietnam even. They, they work as one.
0: Oh, yeah, they do. Uh, and now, you know,
1: we've got a, a, a joint force headquarters, which uh,
0: ensures that, you know, we're, we're an integrated force. It's as simple as that. Yeah, we, we, yeah. Each uh, activity is linked to another activity, and everybody understands that these days. And uh, and we get on with the job. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked in the Middle East uh, as the deputy commander over there, my last uh, job in the permanent force, uh, where it was such, uh, you know, uh, integrated team that everybody knew. Uh, how to do their job and uh, everybody respected how everybody else did their Mm. job so it was it was the only way you're going to achieve the outcome
1: what was your what was your role with 38 squadron as the eo of the flying caribou's well yeah i I guess i went to caribou's when,
0: when the choppers departed and went to army and i was uh they wanted something to do with me but uh at that stage, I thought I'd, I'd pretty well uh, finished my flying career, and and uh, the opportunity come along to go to go to Caribou, and I jumped at it. By that time, I was already a squadron leader, so I went in there originally. And having not flown the aircraft before, spent a year uh, after conversion, just well nine months after conversion, just learning how to how to operate the Caribou. Uh, so all care, no responsibility. But then came hmm. in as the training flight commander with my uh, obviously my instructional background and uh, started doing the uh, the job of training caribou pilots after a couple of years of that became the executive officer of the squadron so uh, it was a great four years four and a half years on uh, on caribous and uh, loved every minute of it
1: so do you see that progression of people like you going through the the air force and in different roles do you see that progression as a as an add-on for what the air force offers to its personnel or uh, a disadvantage
0: Oh, I think uh, I think any any career that offers uh, you know uh, additional experiences has got to be an advantage. Um, it, it's it's getting harder these days, of course, uh, because of the time uh, it takes to train various people. I, that's just the way compliance uh, and everything else has gone over the years. Certainly, um, I think anybody who gets a postgraduate course, such as a flying instructor or test pilot or a combat. Uh, Comet uh, operator uh, As we do with, with a lot of people now uh, We used to call them FCI's I don't know what they call them anymore But uh, the, the, these are These are really uh, important For people uh, developing a career To give them a different Responsibility, a different aspect And a different way of looking at things And uh, to change an aircraft type That's just an extra add-on uh, It doesn't always happen, but it can And uh, and certainly I don't know of anybody mm. uh, who progresses, you know, a long way in any force, who doesn't have uh, opportunities or takes opportunities to do something a little bit different. And I think that's pretty standard.
1: Is it possible that maybe the technology is now going to start restricting that kind of cross-fertilisation of of abilities? For example, uh, if you train to be now an F-35 fighter pilot, such a highly technically developed uh, piece of machinery that the opportunity to move to something else later is less likely given the complexity of the technology?
0: That's always been a bit of the case. I mean, you know, uh, we were sort of a little bit more lucky, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago where where conversion courses were a bit less complex because the aircraft (laughs) were less complex and you could do a change. Uh, Plus we had, you know, that whole swathe of guys that were left over from Vietnam um, who had flown helicopters but were never going to fly helicopters for the rest of their lives, went back to fighters or came from fighters sure. or went on to transport aircraft. I think it's just a sign of the times. Um, certainly most guys who are flying uh, an F-35 will get an opportunity to instruct and they'll get to instruct on a PC-21 perhaps uh, or or a Hawk uh, and, you know, that they'll get their chance to do other things in the flying game. But there's also other jobs you know, which sometimes don't necessarily include flying but uh, are just as interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. The Air Standardisation Committee uh, involved in the United States of America as well, how did that all come about? And can you reflect on what was involved for us?
0: Uh, Well, I was in a – I got posted to a staff job. I'd done staff college and I was in a – what we called then force development, which was a capability development sort of thing, looking at operational requirements, what aircraft – you know, what are we going to next next round of aircraft and all that sort of thing. And part of that job was this uh, standardisation committee, which is uh, you know standard uh, UK, US, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia sort That's of. That's
1: the five eyes, the, yes.
0: The five eyes, yeah. yes. Uh, I became the, the the Australian rep in this job that I had in Canberra which then followed on to the uh, secretariat job in, in Washington for, for three years, which was great. Uh, I, I, it, that organisation still exists. It's, um, uh, I think they may have changed the acronym a little bit, but uh, essentially it's there to ensure that we are interoperable wherever we go. And uh, it's been around since uh, yeah, 1948. So yeah. it, it's, it, it's one of those things that allows those five air forces in the world to conduct business
1: in a way that perhaps uh, other air forces can't and uh, i I believe started by uh um the united states general marshall the the man who was responsible for the marshall plan a very clever idea that makes us therefore more inter interoperable with uh, nato forces as well would it not
0: uh it does uh i think a lot of what this little committee did initially was just testing stuff before it went into the, the pool of NATO and uh, different languages. So uh, we were five nations divided by a common language. NATO is about uh, 15 nations divided by 17 different languages, you know what I mean? I understand. So, and cultures as well. Uh, our cultures are more aligned and uh, that's that's why it was easier to – Develop standards within uh, the ASCC as it did compared to NATO, but a lot of them were then uh, swapped between the two organisations.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm under the impression that if you are an air traffic controller anywhere in the world, the standard language is English. If that is the correct case, is that also the case for uh, pilots across the world?
0: Uh, I guess if you're going to have to talk to uh,
1: an air traffic controller, it is, yes.
0: People working with inside their own nations still speak the language that they want to speak, but internationally,
1: yes, English is the is the uh, is the standard uh, language. Okay, well, fair. Enough. Just a bit of silly question. I wanted to find the answer to: How did your uh, conspicuous service cross come about back in two thousand
0: and six? Ah, I was thrown in the deep end and went off to become uh, director of air force safety and uh, we had a very good system at that stage or or the burgeoning of a very good system for flying safety in those days and that came out of you know a certain amount of loss over the years and uh, uh, we'd built up this good safety system in the process of you know review and supervision and all the rest of it which didn't necessarily go across into what we were doing in our uh, to use a a fairly bland term, ground safety, if you know what I mean. So uh, we call it workplace health and safety now. Um,
1: So just – sorry to be rude and interrupt, Noddy. Is this in any way, shape or form connected to the uh, fatal Sea King accident in Indonesia in 2005?
0: Probably not. That was uh, uh, more or less a. I'll, I'll, I'll actually expand on that a bit later. But uh, take you down that way. Yeah. Okay. Um, we'll come to that. Uh, the workplace health and safety was mainly came out of the F one eleven diesel reseal uh, right. issue. Okay. And and, and
1: tell me what tell me what or our friend who's listening what was that? So
0: uh, we had a F one eleven had a requirement to get its uh, fuel tanks cleaned and then uh, resealed or, you know, so these these were confined spaces using uh, very sort of uh, carcinogenic or toxic chemicals. And we put put people in situations uh, where, as part of this diesel reseal pro- program, where we knew they were probably going to be affected, but we accepted that above uh, or we accepted that uh, as a lesser thing to keep the aircraft serviceable, if you know what I mean. Yep. So we didn't necessarily protect the people, even though we knew that we probably should. And there were operational. Uh, there's a number of good books around about this, and it's no secret now the Inquiry found this out. Uh, so as a result, you know, a number, of, uh, a number of people who were involved in that maintenance program have had shortened lives or have had compromised their lives because of it. I think as a result, we needed to, understand why we do things uh, and we were doing it okay in the in the flying world at the time we didn't necessarily transpose that across to our our ground safety or our maintenance safety so we tried to uh, roll out a similar program it wasn't that easy i mean there's a lot more complexity into and diversity in what we do outside of the flying game flying is pretty straightforward uh, it's not so straightforward in the other areas. So to, br- to roll out a workplace health and safety program that, that people, you know, it's a cultural change uh, and it was going to take a long time. Uh, we rolled that out in 2005. Uh, I I, th- I think it probably took another 10 years before it became what I would call an effective program. But mm. we had to start somewhere. So, um, you know, we, we did a lot of uh, things up front which would try mm. and help change
1: culture was yeah. there a group dedicated to that process uh, or how what, who, who made up the personnel in, in trying to in, install the workplace health system
0: well that was that was all driven out of the director of air force safety which you know i was heading up at the time we had a good support from angus houston who was the chief uh we managed to get, set up a few positions on the bases as uh, as base uh, ground safety officers or or workplace health and safety personnel is always a a limiting resource in any organisation that's got a cap number and uh, you you know you've got to rob somewhere to get something else so uh, having having the support of uh, the chief of air force at the time uh, and certainly given the resource both the human and some financial resource we were able to roll out this uh, initial program which has developed uh, you know a long way since then but we, we had to do it at the time just to get people thinking about it and uh, and start that cultural change, which we knew was going to take several years. But if you don't start, you'll never get there.
1: No, well, you obviously finally did. Well, let's now go back, if you don't mind, to the Sea King accident in Indonesia. Yep. Tell us the background to that and what happened.
0: Uh, well, I mean, there's been an inquiry about that. You know, it was a... It was a, uh, a once again, more of a maintenance issue where um, the, uh, the, 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 and I'm not going to uh, point a finger at anybody here, uh, you know, that's been done enough. But in an organisation which is stressed operationally, sometimes corners are cut, sometimes those cut corners become normal, and sometimes the norm is not right. And that's really what happened here. As a result of that accident and then also the Canimbler accident uh, several years later, I was asked, I was tasked in 2008 once again by uh, the Chief of Air Force via the CDF. CDF was Angus at this time to put together a, a Tiger team to go and look at both uh, Army and Navy Rotary Wing and find out why they were having accidents and... Uh, um, you know, in my, in my opinion, the reason why they were having accidents, not because of the operators, was because of the organisations. And uh, uh, I'll go back to my earlier statements when we we're talking about when the helicopters went across to Army. What what, what was lost there was that you have a non-aviation organisation looking after aviation in, in a in a you know in a, in a depth sort of uh, or a supervisory sort of way, both being given the resources, both. Being given the uh, the uh, the attention they need uh, to maintain, because it's a complex thing, aviation, and, uh, uh, I, and when it's secondary to driving ships or driving tanks, uh, you quite often uh, miss out, and that's what was happening. Um, since then, since that report, which didn't go public, but uh, certainly went within the organisation, um, both army and navy have done some. Uh, uh, I, I think, uh, significant changes in the way they manage their aviation capabilities to to provide that level of supervision mm. and resource that they need.
1: Mm. Let's go back to your overseas jaunts, efforts, work. November 2012, you sent back to the Middle East. How come? What, 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 what was that all about?
0: Uh, well, you know, being a joint force, um, pretty standard that, out of the three forces that were, you know, out of the Army, Navy, Air Force, we all contributed to uh, the, I guess, the executive of, of the, the Joint Task Force there. Um, Army being the most uh, numbers over there, always always headed up that task force. And that that's, makes sense to me. So they provided the uh, the two-star. And, uh And navy and air force provided the deputy commander a one star. And
1: you were you were one of those deputy commanders. One
0: of those deputy commanders. So it was a great opportunity uh, and uh, a great way to finish a a career and doing something operational. And you know it was real time. Real-time operations over there. People were dying, and uh, y- you couldn't afford to uh, take your eye off the ball at any stage. Um,
1: where specific? I mean, was, where specifically was this, Noddy?
0: The headquarters was based in the UAE, but uh, we had a forward headquarters in Kabul, and obviously most of our operations were run out of uh, Taran uh, for the Afghanistan uh, side of the house. But we had. Uh, a large naval contingent. We always had a ship uh, based out of, uh, a- out of Bahrain. Uh, we had air operations out of Qatar and obviously out of, out of the UAE as well. So it was a very large uh, area of operation and, and very complex uh, uh, with several different activities going on at once. Um, mm, mm. Maritime uh, land and air.
1: Then this was Task Force 633,
0: yes? 633. Several have come along and gone since. Uh, you know, we've... Uh, as, as the I guess as the priorities changed in that in that region uh, so so did our task forces and um, it was really really good to work with a joint force there that were committed and dedicated and capable they were doing stuff over there uh, I guess the uh, the current inquiry into uh, the various aspects of the uh, the, the SAS or the uh, special forces over there is uh, is something that's going on at the moment. My approach on that was those guys are doing a tough job.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think sometimes we've got to look at the people at the top of the tree uh, in charge of things. And anyway, be that as it may, let's not look at the political side of things. Task Force Six Thirty Three, working. You were the deputy commander, uh, working yep. with uh, again other countries, other nationals. uh, How did that work? How effective was the relationship and and how quick was communication conveyed from one nation to the other?
0: Oh, I mean, it it worked all the time. I mean, uh, I guess our biggest interaction was with the US forces because they were the larger numbers there, but we also... Uh, in our, in our, the area of our operation there, uh, we had uh, embedded personnel in the uh, Combined Air Operations Centre up, up in Qatar, and, mm. and that uh, worked pretty well. For a while, we had a, uh, you know, a command and control unit over there, which worked extremely well. We kept personnel working in, inside of other organisations. So the communication was seamless, as seamless as it can be in yeah, those situations.
1: Sure, sure.
0: That was, uh, then, of course, we were also lodgers inside the UAE, so we had to have a relationship with the Emiratis, uh, uh, which we did. We had a a very good relationship with those guys and respected what they were doing for us. That relationship continues today. Mm.
1: Um, How difficult was retiring, Noddy, in 2013? uh, It wasn't difficult at all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I I, I
0: came back after eight months in the Middle East pretty burnt out, quite honestly. We were working 18-hour days every day. And, uh, like I said, you, you, you couldn't take your eye off the ball. Working in several different time zones uh, and providing reports and te- you know back to Australia, to the ISAF forces in Europe and, obviously, Afghanistan and then the Middle East as well, and, and other areas of operation where, where our naval forces may have been, uh, y- your, your day was extended, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and, I uh, do,
1: I do. You have a wife and four children. How stressful was your roles in the Air Force on family? You'd
0: have to ask them, I guess. (laughs) My wife keeps saying there's not many people who have sent a husband and two children to the same war, but uh, in this modern era. And, you know, we weren't getting shot at every day, but you were still in in situations where uh, you could have been. The organisation the Australian Defence Organisation, goes out of their way to make operations safe for people. Uh, They really do... Uh, try and make the people who are who are in 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 theatre safe uh, as, yeah. as safe as possible in a warlike situation you know I've I, I got a lot of a lot of time for that that can also lead to issues uh of course uh, people are restricted from what they're trained to do sometimes because of that
1: so how know. proud of how proud are you as a father that four of you all four children are in the air force
0: well, we had five, so they're not all
1: four. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't. Well, didn't know about the fifth. That's a surprise. But you've got four in the air force.
0: We Did- had four in the air force. Uh,
1: uh,
0: they all joined. Uh, well, three of them joined through the academy. One direct entry to be pilots. Uh, uh, I think we hit the average of fifty percent graduation. And uh, the two that. Uh, that didn't make it as pilots. Got became air traffic controllers. One of those is now a sewer air traffic controller, doing very well in air services. And my daughter, who uh, is the other one, she's the chief instructor at the school of air traffic control and sail. Uh, okay, so, so
1: you said you had five. What's the what did the fifth one end up doing?
0: Well, he's the favorite, of course. He's a
1: winemaker. <laughs> yeah. All right. Point taken. Um, uh, if you look, if you reflect back, you you've joined in 1974. You reflect back on those many years. What enduring memories are held for you as enduring memories with the Air Force?
0: Quite honestly, it's uh, it, it's just working with good people. I mean, I love my flying. Do I miss flying? No, not really. I, I did a fair bit of it over the years. Uh, and enjoyed every bit of it. Got a lot of uh, different things, saw different places, uh, you know, did some difficult things, uh, loved instructing, uh, loved teaching people to fly. But in the end, what I like about the Air Force, and this goes right back to what we said at the start, it's working with very good people and, uh, you know, enjoying seeing other people do stuff that, shit, I couldn't do that, you know. Yeah, Uh, yeah. and, And... but it, they all work as a team as well. We, uh, so,
1: yeah. If we've yeah, got yeah. a 17-year-old listening to you right now, not knowing what sort of career to take, what would you say to that person why it's important to consider the Air Force?
0: Um, I'd be worried why he's listening to a podcast of old fast talking. But, uh, uh, you know, um, now... I, you just got to go in there, saying that a, hey, it's an opportunity to do stuff. Uh, it's an opportunity to to do stuff that not is available to any anybody in the streets. That so it, it's it's special in that respect. Hmm. Uh, but it's also very rewarding, and you do get to work with very capable people, and you are part of a team. I, I think that's always the way it should be.
1: Could I uh, could I say to you regarding? Why you'd worry about a seventeen-year-old listening to a couple of old farts? When I started this process last year, my next-door neighbour, seventeen-year-old girl, listened to them. Guess what she now does? She's in the air force. She's in the air force. Well, good so, on her. So, I think that's what we are doing, what you have done in your career, and now sharing it on these podcasts, is important. For a variety of reasons, one of which is it shares with all of us how important the Royal Australian Air Force has been in the history of Australia, having had people like you serve in it and contribute to its magnificence. So I think the role is important and I think the Air Force is important, and I really know your contribution has been important and I want to thank you very much for that.
0: Thanks, Gareth, and uh I just want to say, since since getting out of the uh, the permanent Air Force for the last nine years, I've been working with a fantastic bunch of blokes on these air shows, and uh, uh, I'll probably miss that more than I ever did miss flying. You know what I mean? So, okay.
1: uh, all right, cool. Noddy, Chris, Swade, CSC Air Commodore retired. Thank you very much for your time today, sir. Thanks, Gareth. Uh, enjoyed every bit of it. Globally. The RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavor and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per and Ad Astra.
0: This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families, produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the wellbeing of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.